Austin Found is sponsored by the LBJ Presidential Library on the UT campus. As you think about presidential politics these days, learn about our 36th president, Lyndon Johnson, and his wife, Lady Bird Johnson. Go to lbjlibrary.org. Literally an institution in this town of digging up old photos, old stories, collections, everything you can imagine under the sun about this great city. Greasy spoons, dives, old clubs you love this city, you're going to love it even more. Real people, real stories, real places. This is the Austin Found Podcast. I'm J.B. Hager, joined by statesman writer Michael Barnes. And this is a cool story that you've shared in one of your indelible Austin books. In fact, volume three. Yes. And I really enjoyed reading this because you profiled... Three police officers, one black, one Hispanic, and one white, at the same time and place in, like, 1960 Austin. Right. And what that looked like and felt like and very cool stuff. Well, the three very different uh, profiles and interviews, but they all ended up being related because of what was going on in the city at the time and with the police department. It was segregated. It was still a pretty sleepy town, and yet there were dramatic occurrences, the the 1966 tower shooting and so forth. But um, most of the time, they were rounding up drunks, which, you know, some things never <laughs> That change. was the common thread, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, yeah, it's talking about uh, East 12th Street and, and uh, 6th Street, and yeah. we'll, we'll get more into that with, yeah. with different people. But let's start with Sergeant Maul Wiley. Yes. The, the African-American police officer. He was the first black homicide detective on the force, and he joined very early on. And he was part of a completely segregated unit that only patrolled East 11th and East 12th. And they had one bang-up old cop car. And if they needed to arrest somebody, they put them in a shack the size of an outhouse. This was still a time when many white people would not allow themselves to be arrested or given a ticket by a black officer. Uh, Yeah, I was astounded by that, that they would often call for a white officer to t- basically take it from there if if they did indeed right. have an incident with with a white citizen. Right. Although uh, Mal, uh, who was a country guy, uh, military, he just said, look, you know, when you get downtown, <laughs> you tell them what color you are. <laughs> but I don't care if you're white or brown or black. You're just drunk and obnoxious. So, <laughs> yeah, You know, let's talk for a second about the segregation at that time because – Okay, we know it was 1960, and there there was segregation everywhere in the schools and everything like that. But in the police force, you think, well, these were all men. I don't believe there were any women at this time. No, there were not. Uh, these were all men putting their life on the line. Right. They, like, I think I'm not doing a very good job of articulating that. You think that would bond them so well together, yet they were still kept separate. They, they were kept separate. separate. And Mal was part of the first group, and I should say uh, uh, sergeant. Uh, Wiley. Right. It was um, uh, part of the first group that did integrate the the full force, and he was assigned Northwest Hills, and he felt very lonely up there. <laughs> right. And so he would volunteer for duties back in East Austin because, you know, he had a really good, common touch with the people on the street. Uh, and I, I know that uh, you dug up some statesman headlines. Like, literally, it made headlines when he was oh, the yes. first homicide detective, uh, black homicide detective. Right. 
and we had two papers then, a morning paper, The American, and the afternoon paper, The Statesman. The morning paper just blithely in its old style said, police department gets Negro. And you're like, oh, wow. my. They, they, they amended it by the afternoon paper. During his tenure as a police officer, and they were in this era, it was when white people first started showing up on East 12. No, I would say that goes back farther. Okay. Uh, that goes back to the 1920s, at least, okay. you know, the whole jazz age. Yeah. Uh, UT students would uh, slum it, as they called it, over in the east side and go to the jazz clubs. But this was also the first time that there were popular clubs that Anglos would go to uh, routinely. Uh, and they didn't have incidents. At the not for the most part. But we're still just a drunk problem. Yeah, still, <laughs> as today, it's still just a drunk problem. Now, the, didn't, the traffic didn't go both ways. Yeah. Uh, you know, African Americans were generally not welcomed in white clubs, but especially college students. Um, uh, and, 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 and some uh, very famous people like Alan Lomax and his father, John Lomax, uh, the, the great who uh, recorded like 10,000 songs, uh, ballads and folk songs and so forth. They both worked at the University of Texas, and they went on the east side and recorded blues songs, and it's fantastic. And he stayed in the in the police force long enough to see it get integrated. Yes, and for women to rise to the top, and he, which would have been when? Like, uh, this would be happening in the seventies. Okay, and in all three of these uh, gentlemen were were country guys, and they all were in the military. Uh, Sergeant Flores grew up on a cotton farm out in Williamson County. Uh, Lieutenant Hinkle grew up just in barefoot Kentucky Highlands and also was in the military. So these were not city guys. Yeah. And they actually felt like this gave them an advantage because they had a common touch and uh, could talk to anybody. Sergeant Flores Jr., ah. I believe, right? He probably was a junior, but <laughs> I'm, I'm forgetting. At the time that he was on the police force, how many Hispanic officers? Well, most of the time he was the only one. And he would be in in, uh, meetings, you know, and he'd be the only uh, Mexican-American there. It was funny. He resisted the idea now, you know, in his old age that that there was super bad discrimination. But then he tells stories about it. You know, I was able to get him to talk long enough to talk about how uh, people talked about Hispanics and incidents where it clearly he was the only one who could go into, say, the the Mexican bars along uh, East, East Cesar Chavez or East 6th Street and primarily East 6th Street and uh, take care of business, you know. So there was discrimination there as well. It was, I think, again, in Indelible Austin, you shared some of the story. These were comments made to him that would be fireball offenses today. Oh, absolutely. Like no. daily, probably well, on a daily basis. Right, he, you know, they would say, well, yeah, of course the, that Mexicans stole that car, you know, whatever. That's what they do. That's the kind of comments that he heard. But he also had so many funny stories, as all three of them did. I mean, it was still a pretty sleepy town. There was not a lot of violence. One of the things he said is finding some people, Latinos, uh, drinking under the Montopolis Bridge. Now, why that was a crime, I don't know. But, <laughs> but he was bringing them in, and they said, hey, you know, you're Hispanic, we're Hispanic. Why don't you let us go? And he goes, well, if every Anglo let the Anglos go and every African-American <laughs> let the African-American, there would be nobody in jail. Especially because they were working the neighborhoods that way they at were. that time. They were very much so. I think it was a common thread with all three of them. There was references to hanging out under the Montopolis Bridge. Well, there was, uh, they, that must have been the place. <laughs> 
Well, it was pretty rural at the time. Yeah. It uh, There were only a, a few bridges over the river, and that was probably, at that point, that was the oldest bridge. Uh, it went back to the 30s. So, You know, t- to this day, because I drive by there often, that's yeah. uh, a little loop through on a bike where you go literally under the bridge, which yeah. is now becoming a bikeway, by right, the way, right, right. on top of this. But, uh, you still today will find people drinking and fishing. Like it, it, and there's a little tiny along the Colorado coming back in towards town. There's a little bait house uh. that probably looks exactly like it did <laughs> in 1960. You know, other than all the con- cranes and construction, yeah. you're like, this probably looks a lot like it, it does, did at that time. It does. And that's what the river would look like all the way through town because it wasn't until. 1960 that they built the Longhorn Dam and impounded Town Lake, which became Ladyburg Lake. So the river was variable and, you know, you could step across it mm-hmm. uh, during the uh, droughts. And it was looked more like the, the river below the dam. And again, the astounded by the how minimalist the police force was at that time. And, oh. and, and uh, Sergeant Flores talked about that, how few cars might have been out there and officers at any given time. Well, there was, you know, like a north car, a south car, an east car, a west car. And and then there was the, the, the black neighborhood car. That was a separate car. Which was a hand-me-down car. A really hand-me-down car. You oh. know, and that was one of the things they rejoiced about the most was they got to drive the real cars, the new cars, <laughs> once they integrated the force. Ah, the, the, the old hand-me-down. Yeah. And then just to give you a time frame, he retired in 1989. When did you talk to him? Uh, last year. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly, with all three of these cases, it was a woman who brought me the story. It was some companion of theirs. With uh, Lieutenant Hankel, it was his current wife. And it was his secretary who had saved all of his notes or encouraged him to. And then with Sergeant Flores, it was his his companion, his paid companion, that's taking care of him in his old age. He doesn't seem to need it. He's pretty spry. And then in the case of, of Sergeant Wiley, his daughter Kathy, was invaluable in setting all this up. And he was the one who was most interested in actually having all this written down. And he was very, very careful to make sure I got it right. <laughs> and we went through many interviews. Really? And he said, no, no, that's not the way it happened. <laughs> I'm going to go back and change, you know, challenge what you said there. And then... I appreciate all that, and I love the time I spent with him, but by the end, I was ready to strangle him. <laughs> now, let's talk a little bit more about Lieutenant Ernie Hinkle. This was the Anglo. He was the white mm-hmm. uh, officer. Right. Same time and same place. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you must have hit it off because he put a book together of some of these stories, uh, being a police officer. Yes. Now, that actually came before I interviewed him, that he'd done a little memoir. And it's strung together anecdotes from his street cop days. And he hated desk jobs. He, he kept begging to go back out on the streets. And uh, he's a big, tall guy, uh, very plain spoken, former uh, you know, butcher in a grocery store. And he just, and you know, when I went out there, one of the times to, to interview him, he was like, no, you're staying. We're going fishing and we're going to stay for mm-hmm. supper and stuff. And I'm like, I got to go back to the city and be a reporter. <laughs> and he's, but his life out there in Marble Falls is uh, uh, very quiet and, and wonderful. I love the references to where they worked and at different times and the different places and where they were in the city. And he worked at Cash Carry on Lamar, which was a meat right. processing place. I looked it up. Like I think that would have been like, what, Lamar and Koenig-ish? 
Uh, yes, and it would have had a, a butcher shop in it, but also grocery store as well. Yeah. Cash Carry was one of the local uh, grocery chains. One of the main things you went to a grocery store back then was the the butcher shop because you no longer wanted to do that yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's probably a juice land now. If that yeah. building still exists, right? <laughs> Not only was the police force segregated, the schools were segregated at that time, as we mentioned, but even the way people would socialize on Lower Sixth Street, Mm -hmm. it could be one side could be completely different from the other. And I know that Lieutenant Hinkle referenced that. Yeah, in fact, all of them did, all three of them, because the 400 block of East Sixth Street, which I think has the Ritz Theater on it, I think that's the landmark. Okay. The north side of the street was African-American businesses, and the south side of the street was Latino businesses. And this was true for a pretty long time, uh, well into the 60s. Of course, uh, scattered among those were the Lebanese-American and Chinese-American businesses. Sixth Street was, was integrated in a way that the rest of the city wasn't. Red River was integrated. East Avenue was integrated, which is where I-35 is today. They were much more porous at those points in terms of social mixing. Uh, and again, he also talked about how few officers, in his words, were like 8 to 10 at a night. Yes. Where uh, you referenced South by Southwest, there would be 200 sure. just, just in downtown. Just on 6th Street. Just to give you – um, yeah, so I don't know how they kept order other than – Well, because nothing was going on. I mean, yeah. You know, you could walk up and down the street and there'd be nobody there. Other than excessive drinking. Right. There there was that then and now. And and they didn't have radios, so they had to go to a call box to call in problems or requests or everything. And so – Periodically along uh, the streets would be a, a, a police call box. When, yeah, when did police get radios? If I'm thinking, have, I would have thought they would have had them at this yet. time. Not, hmm. not, not when they started. They the had to go find of them a call to, box that would connect them to headquarters. Headquarters. Yeah. Wow, how did those work? <laughs> you know, it's funny when just when you made that face, you can't just I went <laughs> pick it up and just because anyone could pick it up. They had to be they locked could. or something. They were locked. They were locked. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. I got to get to a call box. <laughs> As you shared the, these stories of these three officers, the, the timing was in common for all of them, the, the, the tower shooting with Whitman. They all have very, obviously been a police officer. Every Austinite probably remembers where they were when that happened, but the police officers knew exactly where they were and, oh, and, and tried to respond. And, and also the, the, the first responders in, at Brackenridge Hospital and in the other hospitals because everybody – had bodies coming in, had injured coming in. Two of them missed it altogether, you know, showing up late, you know, to help. Because they were, they were farther east, probably. Well, one of them was out of town and came in, mm. you know. But Lieutenant uh, Hinckley came near the end, and he got a, 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 a interrupted guy with, like, a deer rifle shooting at the tower. And he goes to the man, uh, they've caught the guy. He says, no, that's him up there, waving. Uh, a, a, a white handkerchief. He goes, I'm not going to let him get away with this. He w- he would have been shooting at an officer up there who was saying it's over. The idea of all these people coming out with their guns to shoot at the tower. I'm sure we're going to get more into that in great detail on oh, a future episode. Many shooting, episodes. But, but yeah, for those who aren't aware of it, that, that shooting went on for such a length of time that mm. citizens were showing up right. with their rifles to, right. to help take care of it. Right. But uh, Hinkle remembers people like a cop up there waving, like it's over. It's over, and 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 then people, someone saying, "No, firing I'm away." Yeah, 
Wow. Wow. <laughs> and I thought it was cool that, that uh, Hinkle went on to be one of the founding guys behind Blue Santa, which you just... you. Th- you, you, th- you assume these things have always been there. It's, you know, they, uh... Well, he was, he's a sweet old guy. You know, he's, he's so big he can afford to be sweet. You know, just like one of those football players or, that you see that's just a, a, a puppy. He was sent out doing a lot of the early uh, well, social work on the street that police do. You know, community engagement, we'd call it now. Mm-hmm. And pl- uh, uh, cops didn't do that. But he was assigned the first wave of this get to know the people you're you're protecting and engage them and become friendly with them so that when you show up, as a point of reference, when Sergeant Flores showed up at one of these uh, uh, Mexican-American bars on, on East 6, Bar East 6, uh, which were still there 10 years ago. I don't know if you remember that. But, I do, yeah, yeah. But he showed up and a guy had just stolen cash from the bartender and, and Sergeant Flores confronted him at the door you know, he had a gun, but he's not going to use a gun for this. And so he just hit him with his billy club on his hand, and he dropped the money, and he took the money back, and he handed it back. But one of the things he, he remembers to this day that nobody helped him. Everybody in the bar just was like, no. Right, don't get involved. No. Right? No. And I, I think that the, this mm. is uh, were the days before the community engagement. And, and I don't know who came up with that idea, but it, it's brilliant. What I thought was cool that tied all these together is, is – because they ended up in the military, it led them to, you know, becoming a police officer, which is a common thing. Yeah. I think people end up in the military, especially if they serve in battle. Mm-hmm. Life can be pretty boring uh, okay. when you come back home. But with them, I think here's the thing is the, the, uni- the United States military uh, integrated in 1948. It became the great, great equalizer. So you could be black, you could be Latino, you could be white, and you were all following the same orders. And so, and living in the same quarters, it doesn't get enough credit for changing our society. But the integration of the military made it possible for all these three guys to be part of the same force eventually. Well, and at the beginning of this, you talked about, you know, they would have been farm kids yeah. basically if had they not gone into the military which led them to the police force it's mm-hmm. like they were staring at farming picking cotton mm-hmm. you know just very Absolutely. very uh, one of them worked for the health department for like 175 bucks a month or something like that right just as a janitor there was a, a common thread of, of gratitude for being able to serve for Absolutely. the police and to be in a city and away from all that hard work in the country Farming is hard work. Ranching is hard work. Uh, they all experience that. Now, Sergeant Wiley still loves it so much. He's out in the country still all the time. He would go. He inherited some land in East Texas. He would drive all the way to East Texas and back every weekend to take care of his ranch there. Oh, wow. I mean, he loved it so much. But the guys who were picking cotton didn't go back to picking cotton. That was yeah. like, no. And I, know, I, think it, I believe it was Flores, you know, in the Air Force, you forget that a lot of people who are new to Austin, you forget that it's called Austin Bergstrom because it was an Air Force it base at the time, Force which is what brought him here. It started as the LA Air Force Base, and then it was named after the the first casualty in World War II, uh, who was an Austinite, and he was from an old Swedish family, the Bergstroms, who, and in fact, farmed in that area. So, 
it all is tied together, JB. All I know. tied together. I know. That leads me to something in our next episode. We're going to talk about one of the, the most decorated military guys. Absolutely. Buck, out of Austin. Buck ever. Simpson. Yeah. yeah. Really, really cool story, which you'll, you'll catch on the next episode. But uh, thank you for tuning in to Austin Found. Of course, you can get a lot of these stories online that uh that uh, michael barnes here has written for the austin american statesman the, the, a lot of those live online if not all of them and then indelible austin volumes one through three those are the book up. versions of the very best collections and we also have additionally a digital newsletter that deals mostly with texas history called think texas is free and you can sign up on statesman's newsletter page online and get it every tuesday and pass on to your friends if you, you think they would enjoy Austin Found, these great collection of stories. They can subscribe by searching Austin Found wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to comment or ask a question uh, to this show, you can send it to... Questions are great. I spend half my day answering reader questions. <laughs> like, what's this little doohickey here? Where, yeah. Why is that street named that? And I'm, yeah. I'm ready. I'm, I'd, I'd rather do that than almost see. Reach out to you at... M Barnes at statesman.com or you can email me jhager h-a-g-e-r at statesman.com mm-hmm.